not only is the coronavirus awful, it can help bring on authoritarianism. But with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Has the coronavirus either unintentionally or possibly intentionally served to increase the political power of right-wing authoritarian governments here in the U.S. and around the world. Our guest today, John Pfeffer of the Institute for Policy Studies, believe it has. He writes that, quote, authoritarian leaders had taken advantage of the coronavirus pandemic to further concentrate power in their own hands. Uh, shoot, I'll clip that out later. Meanwhile, the far right has pushed hard from the margins to accelerate the collapse of democracy. End of quote. On today's Keeping Democracy Alive, John Pfeffer and I will discuss the power grabs by Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, Viktor Orban, as, and others, as well as how the accelerationists on the far right have mobilized on the street, even during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. We'll also talk about progressive responses and the more optimistic prospects for a more peaceful and just post-pandemic politics. John Pfeffer, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me on your show. John Pfeffer is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's worked as an international affairs representative in Eastern Europe and East Asia for the American Friends Service Committee. He's also worked for the AFSC on such issues as the global economy, gun control, women and workplace, and domestic politics. He's served as a of Consultant for Foreign Policy in Focus, the Institute for Policy Studies, and the Friends Committee on National Legislation, among other organizations. He has a new book titled Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams. He was there when the uh, communists were in power, and uh, this takes a look at uh, what's happened since then. But to top, the topic today is COVID and authoritarianism. Everyone knows what the coronavirus is, but many listeners may not be as clear on the definition of authoritarianism. Is it right or left? What is a good definition? That is a good question. Um, an authoritarian power is a power which is concentrated, generally speaking, in an individual or a small group of individuals, uh, which have uh, supreme control, political control in the country. Um, that could uh, depend on uh, ideology. It could be a left authoritarian, it could be a right authoritarian. But what really distinguishes an authoritarian from, say, a democracy is that uh, an authoritarian is not answerable to anybody else, uh, certainly not answerable to the people, um, through democratic mechanisms, 
uh, not answerable necessarily to uh, a legislature. Uh, but I should hasten to add that, you know, it is a spectrum. There there are kind of supreme leaders and, and authoritarian like, say, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, uh, who truly is uh, on the top of the heap with very few contenders or even consultants uh, in his uh, in his immediate environs. And then there are those who are authoritarian by tendency, if you will, uh, who would like to be in a position yeah. like Kim Jong-un, but uh, are not able to. Um, so that would be someone like Donald Trump, yes. who's certainly authoritarian by tendency. Oh, yeah. So certainly he, is, he has to answer to other people in an American democracy. That's an awfully big word for Donald Trump. What can I say? I don't think very highly of the man. I, I find it curious how the gun-toting, camouflage-wearing, angry white men of the far right We've seen in, you know, the small protests at state houses across the country. They even threaten the life of a governor in Michigan. Uh, they claim masks are tyranny. As a traditional left liberal, I oppose tyranny with all my strength. What do they have a point about masks? Is it tyranny? They they've been saying that it is a lot. Well, obviously, here in the United States, we have a tradition of. Uh, we might call it libertarianism, um, that kind of live free or die <laughs> uh, philosophy where, you know, that, we yeah. don't want the state to dictate to us what we should do. I mean, get the state off our backs, basically. Right. Um, and that applies across the board. I mean, we don't want the state to tell us we can't have an abortion. We don't want the state to tell us uh, we can't carry guns. I mean, so it, it again, goes across political tendencies. But on the other hand, we live in a society. We're not all just kind of individuals living in bunkers, you know, and there are laws we have to obey as part of living in society. So no one is going to argue, for instance, that uh, a stoplight is tyranny. You know, a stoplight is necessary so that we don't die on the road, you know. You don't see uh, motorists successfully arguing that they can uh, disobey traffic laws simply because uh, they want government off their backs. And I would argue that a mask is comparable to a stoplight. You know, it, it's a way of stopping uh, infection from spreading in a community. Uh, it is the rules of the road, if you will, uh, but this time applied in, in the health sphere. Yeah, and allegedly Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, said, accuse the other side of that which you are guilty no, no doubt these same people, many of whom I have met through my former work as a state senator uh, who oppose masks and you know claim to be libertarian, they would also vehemently oppose any and all gun safety legislation. I find it fascinating. These same anti-tyranny crusaders are nowhere to be found when the actual federal secret police attack and grab peaceful protesters. Is there a strategy at work here? And are these Second Amendment no-mask people either knowingly or unknowingly part of some push for real authoritarianism, a police state? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I can't pretend to, to know the inner workings of, you know, the, the Boogaloo Boys or the Three Percenters or, um, or the militia movements or the various kind of uh, uh, groups out there that have uh, been uh, skeptical, shall we say, of, of masks and 
but also have uh, have been very much opposed to um, you know what they consider to be anarchist uprisings uh, around the country, like um, what they perceive to be happening in Portland. Uh, I think what what makes it difficult to define at this point is that um, the federal government, which generally speaking is something that these folks have have always opposed, um, is headed up by Donald Trump, someone that they actually like. And so I think they are in a quandary themselves about uh, their attitude toward the state. In other words, these accelerationists, Uh people who want to accelerate basically the collapse of society, um, they kind of uh, uh, cultivated that ideology at a time when you know, they simply didn't like who was in charge in Washington, even if it was, you know, a, a moderately conservative Republican. They saw it as a representative of uh, of a state that they uh, simply disagreed with. Donald Trump is something different. Donald Trump is someone who kind of reflects their values at a mm. very deep level. And so, uh, so that means that if Donald Trump is going to send in the feds to, uh, to crack down on, on demonstrators, um, to restore order, mm-hmm. then suddenly, you know, these folks who are on the fringes and, and had to adhere to a, a pretty pure anti-state ideology, suddenly they've kind of switched places and support the state, as long as the state is identified as Donald Trump. Uh, to me, I mean, how could you get more of a repressive state than a police state? And they seem to like it. I, it's amazing to me. I, I guess maybe they don't think about the same way I do. <laughs> now, well, I, I think they think of the police state in this sense as upholding, you know, white order, ah, um, whereas yes. the police state previously did not. Well, I mean, it, it, some of us would argue it did yeah. previously as well uphold the white order, but not so explicitly as what Donald Trump represents. So it, it really it has scrambled their their thinking. I mean, so much so that you, you'll find, you know, representative, you have a representative out in, uh, in eastern Washington, a representative of, um, of the three percenters and of, of the militia movement actually running for office. And previously, that would have been unheard of. I mean, these folks don't participate in politics. They don't believe in politics. But the Republican Party has been pushed so far to the right yeah. that it now actually represents their ideology and they're comfortable running for office under uh, the aegis of the Republican Party. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I, they're not conservative at all, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Some of the pro-gun, anti-mask protesters have said that they believe that the numbers of, of deaths from uh, coronavirus, from COVID-19, are distorted to induce fear-mongering as part of an agenda to control people. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that's that's fascinating. Of course, you know that here you you had all sorts of conspiracy theories about the um, suppression of numbers, uh, for instance, related to vaccines. You know, mm-hmm. that all these people have have died, and and it's been covered up. And now you have quite the opposite. You have uh, so-called exaggeration of numbers as as uh, it relates to COVID deaths, and. You know, I think that fits into these kind of larger conspiracy theories about, you know, what Anthony Fauci is is involved in, um, supposedly, uh, that a kind of 
uh, health care slash nanny state uh, is is out there trying to um, suppress our God-given right to reopen the economy, um, to go to bars, to swim in swimming pools, to get our hair cut. Um, and uh, again, it, it's kind of a, um, a, it's a complicated argument because, of course, the state is headed up by Donald Trump mm-hmm. and the Republicans are in control of Senate. But what I think Trump and others did very cleverly was to say uh, that there's this deep state uh, that exists, a deep state that is fundamentally opposed to Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, assumption of power in Washington. And uh, in other words, they they can still cultivate an anti-state ideology among their followers, even when they head the state. <laughs> I mean, it's a brilliant kind of strategy, if you will. Um because uh, it, it permits this kind of contradictory thinking where, uh, you know, the, we can both support the president and oppose uh, the people that work with him, uh, you know, like, like Fauci. And it's this deep state that is, uh, you know, opposed to reopening the economy. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the, the, the deep state could care less about the economy. What they're most interested in is getting rid of Trump. And so, therefore... Uh, the the fear mongering, the supposed exaggeration of COVID deaths, is all to shut down the economy to make it uh, that much less likely that Donald Trump will win re-election in November. So then, the the deep state, which of course is just people in government, thousands of them doing their jobs, uh, that's not good. But an authoritarian dictator wannabe. That's okay. That kind of state is okay. Okay, then. You're real conservative. (laughs) My goodness. And for those who may have just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, COVID-19 helping along the rise of authoritarianism here and around the world with our guest, John Pfeffer, who is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. One of the exceedingly rare points of agreement on the right and left is opposition to globalization for very different reasons. As a lefty, I oppose much of it without worker and environmental protections. It seems one of the main intents of globalization is to avoid such regulations. But for the right, how to them is the coronavirus related to globalization? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the right has opposed globalization for different reasons than the ones you've articulated. Um, you know, they, they're not interested in environmental regulations or, or uh, stronger labor protections. In fact, they'd like to get rid of those as well. Um, but what the reason they dislike globalization is because they see it as eroding um, the sovereign power of the nation state. And as good nationalists, they want uh, greater control of the economy. Um, and uh, either corporations or authorities like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank um, essentially assume powers uh, as a result of, of economic forces like globalization over the nation state and can overrule the nation state uh, in, in essence. Um, so that's what you know that the right doesn't like about globalization. Now, uh, one could also argue that that a number of right wing leaders 
don't actually care so much about um, the ideology here. What they're most interested in is their own particular control of the nation state. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, common for political scientists to talk about the, the notion of state capture in which the right wing and sometimes the left, but in an authoritarian uh, situation, uh, a, a leader will capture the state uh, and the resources of the state and the power of the state in order to distribute the, the goods, if you will, to their patronage systems. That's uh, another reason why uh, the right wing uh, is opposed to globalization, because it undermines their particular project of state capture. So, okay, so you have those kind of two different yeah. parallel um, approaches to globalization. Now, why would they uh, think of, of COVID as, as part of globalization? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, from, from their point of view, COVID is a kind of expression of globalization, uh, the worst aspects of globalization. You have all these people traveling around unmonitored. They, they come, go across borders and they're spreading a disease. Um, and that, you know, is, is a kind of metaphor for them for globalization. Uh, COVID, in other words, is just the manifestation of something that's been going on for decades. Um, it could be, you know, cosmopolitanism. It could be, you know, uh, uh, culture, cultural things that go across borders, which they see as basically... Um, attacking the purity of the nation state or the purity of that particular ethno state if you will Yikes. and and covid is just yes and covid <laughs> is just the latest in in uh in that kind of um string and then of course they're not happy about china china of yeah. course has been you know the the almost the exemplar uh, now of the global economy since so much so many of the of the um uh, global value chains uh, either originate in China or are, are involve Chinese manufacturing at one one level or another. And so, uh, so as, because China represents globalization in this mm. fundamental way, uh, they can see COVID as you know something unleashed by China uh, as part of China's you know bid to take over the world. Okay, so it was infected, yeah, for a couple of months, but then it was able to. Uh, get uh, uh, get a handle on it, and now it has recovered much more quickly, and as uh, it seems, uh, benefited economically from this. So mm. those would be kind of the two arguments I think the right has made in connecting COVID to globalization. Yeah, pretty simplistic, of course, but the most serious victims of COVID-19, at least here in America, are people of color and less well-off Americans. It is much more deadly and higher numbers for these demographics. It is the other in so many ways. They brought it here to Trump and the far right in general. How has the pandemic played into their racist narrative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you could argue that one of the major reasons that Trump was um, not particularly troubled by uh, the coronavirus when it first uh, spread in the United States was twofold. One, of course, it was showing up in, in cities, uh, mostly in the Northeast uh, and in California that were controlled by Democrats. No. <laughs> so, you know, obviously, he didn't care about that. Uh, and then second, because it wasn't really uh, at first attacking, you know, his core constituency, which was white men, um, 
outside of those particular population centers. So, uh, so you could argue that race did play a, a role in, um, in say, the denialism of, of uh, the Trump administration in the past. And, and you can kind of identify a similar kind of denialism, say, in, in some of the other authoritarian leaders, leaders like Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, who similarly were uh, unconcerned uh, when coronavirus was largely um, affecting a minority population. Right. Um, how the coronavirus has, you know, swept through the South and has been, you know, hitting in the Midwest and, you know, in Republican states yeah. uh, and, you know, hitting white folks, you know, yeah. suddenly, you know, the Trump is a little bit more concerned, if, if only for electoral reasons. Of of course, he never does anything other than that, and so much proof of that. In your webinar that you gave on the topic, you talked about the competent and the incompetent far right. Please explain what you mean and how it might relate to COVID-19. Sure. And, you know, I, I'm sensitive to, to, the, uh, to kind of a knee-jerk response, which is, how can you say that any of these right-wing leaders are competent at any what? level? And, and I would have to say that's true. I mean, there is a, a level of incompetence um, across the board with, with these leaders. But you can certainly distinguish between uh, people who have either, either came to power um, with a kind of thought-out um, a plan for governance, or at least developed it when they were in power, uh, and um, and they they have been able to be very effective uh, as leaders because um, they were very political, and very knowledgeable about how to push their agenda through. If you will, that would be a, a distinction between Donald Trump and Mike Pence. I mean, Mike Pence spent all those years in, in Congress. He certainly knows how to push legislation through. He is competent at that level. Uh -huh. He may be just as crazy as Donald Trump when it comes to his ideology, uh, right. but, but there's a, a level of competence there that actually is in some sense scarier yeah. um, uh, than, than the incompetent. But, uh, but examples of competent so-called leaders would be Viktor Orban in Hungary. He's been in power since 2010. He's expanded his electoral base. He's managed to push through pretty much every piece of legislation he wants. He has a supermajority in parliament. When the supermajority passed things and then the, the constitutional court uh, said it was unconstitutional, he changed the constitution. Uh, he's changed the constitution six times. Mm. You know? So clearly there's a level of scary competence yes. there, you know? Um, or Shinzo Abe, who uh, has uh, been in power in Japan nearly as long, uh, who has pushed through, again, his right-wing agenda. He's, you know, a career politician. He knows how to work the system. I contrast that with people who, frankly, either don't know how to work the system or don't care about working the system. So someone like Bolsonaro, who, true, was in the uh, Brazilian legislature, he, he basically has no idea what he's doing. Um, mm. He is, you know, uh, as, like Trump, he is kind of wedded to conspiracy theories. He's, he's all over the board in terms of his philosophy, if you can call it that. Um, he switches his positions uh, from day to day, and he's, quote-unquote, not getting the job done. Now, uh, in some sense, that's good, but, you know, mm. what he's fundamentally, you know, uh, what he's fundamentally 
is interested in uh, seeing happen is, you know, what Steve Bannon used to call the deconstruction of the administrative state. He just wants to deregulate. He wants to kind of reduce government to uh, to its 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 most minimal uh, functioning, and uh, and you know that that's in some sense that's a philosophy, and one can see you know like as Thatcher did in England, a kind of determined approach to reducing the power of the state and to deregulate, or you find it in an incompetent leader who basically just lets government fall apart, like the car you leave in your driveway and you never service for years and years. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, sometimes they, they actually know what they're doing. And, um, you know, I don't know about COVID in, in Hungary. I mean, in, in uh, uh, Bolsonaro's Brazil, it's really bad, as I understand. A lot of the yeah. people with less money, of which there are a lot, are are dying, and he doesn't seem to be doing much, if anything, about it. And so and we mentioned Hungary's Viktor Orban. How has he taken advantage of the COVID pandemic to expand the power he already had? Mm-hmm. Well, it's twofold. I mean, one was his kind of attitude towards minority, uh, towards immigrants, rather. Yeah. Uh, and this was a great opportunity, you know, for Orban, who's, who's built his his uh, domestic base over the last, I would say, at least five or six years on the back of an anti-immigrant platform. And very early on in the uh, pandemic, he said, you know, immigrants and COVID-19, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, and if we want to really, you know, uh, crack down on on this pandemic, we have to close our borders um, uh, tightly. Okay, So that was number one. Right. Number two, he pushed through something called an enabling act. It was basically uh, an emergency powers uh, piece of legislation, though unfortunately the, the name enabling act has uh, resonances in Europe, since it's very similar to what the Nazis um, <laughs> instituted back in the 1930s. But in any case, what Orban was interested in was uh, effectively um, declaring emergency powers for himself for the entire uh, length of, of the crisis so that he could, you know, do any number of things, throw people in jail, for instance, if he felt that they were violating um uh, the, the new law of the, of the land. Um, he could uh, crack down on media that uh, was uh, opposing his rule or his policies. And uh, when they passed it, there was no time limit on it, which is unusual. Usually, usually emergency acts of this type, you know, they go for 30 days, they go for 60 days, 90 days, but there was no limit to mm. this particular enabling act. As it turned out, um, the parliament did eventually, um, with Orban's blessing, uh, put it down, uh, you know, revoke the, the emergency right. powers. But they did say, you know, we have the right to reinstitute them at any time. And uh, and the, the other really interesting thing about what Orban did is that he didn't have to do it. I mean, as I said, he has a supermajority in parliament. He can pass anything he wants. And if the court steps in and, and challenges him, as he has done in the past, he can simply change the constitution. The reason he did it is mostly for theater. He wanted to demonstrate that he is the man on the white horse. And, and in Hungarian history, it has particular resonance because, of course, the man on the white horse was Admiral Horthy, the, the fascist ruler in the interwar period. And 
you know, he wants to demonstrate that only he can really effectively solve major problems uh, involving Hungary. Parliament, not so important. The court system, not so important. Certainly not opposition parties or civil society, but Orban alone. So it sounds like a good definition of authoritarianism is the man on the white horse. Just fix everything. All the power right there. Just take care of everything. Now, what about, there's there's another a whole bunch of right-wing bad guys around the world. There's Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, Israel's Netanyahu. How, how have they used the pandemic? I, I don't know anything about Duterte with regard to this, but what about Turkey and uh, Israel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, in, in all three cases, we've seen um, the leaders take advantage of COVID to uh, acquire or consolidate their power. Uh, Duterte um, passed uh, a national security law not, not too long ago, actually, uh, that, again, gives, uh, like in Hungary, gives Duterte special powers, uh, which he has used to shut down yeah. a television station, to go after um, Rappler, which was kind of an independent website, news website. Um, he's also kind of authorized his police to shoot people on oh, yeah. the street mm-hmm. if, uh, if they violate curfew or any of the other laws. And that's a real threat in, in the Philippines, since, of course, Duterte was responsible or has been responsible for somewhere in the vicinity of 27,000 extrajudicial killings. Mm. Um, and this is in his drug war or right. since he took power in 2016. Uh, in Turkey, Erdogan has uh, has used COVID and, you know, the, the outbreak in Turkey is pretty significant, although they seem more or less to have it under control now. But uh, for Erdogan, the, the challenge has been um, a Democratic Party, um, National Democratic Party, that is uh, affiliated kind of with uh, Kurdish community in the country that has uh, real power in um, in region, and mostly the, um, the southeastern region where the Kurdish community is, is concentrated. And... Um, uh, Erdogan has kind of gone after all of the local officials that have uh, that are affiliated with this party, uh, and he's instituted, for instance, direct rule, uh, replacing mayors who were elected uh, from this party, replacing them uh, with his own handpicked puppets, essentially. And so now those municipalities are ruled directly from uh, Ankara, from the federal center. Yeah. Um, The other challenge for Erdogan, of course, has been the uh, immigrant community. And and early on in in the crisis, this was uh, back at the end of February, Erdogan said that, you know, we we have this huge influx, a new influx of Syrian refugees as a result of, of, um, you know, the the conflict taking place in Idlib and uh, some of the, um, you know, the, the Russian government and the Syrian government against the rebels and uh, so a complicated situation, but of course people were, as usual, fleeing um, the conflict and flowing into Turkey. And Erdogan said, basically, I'm going to remove my border with Greece um, and let these people just go into Greece. And uh, and so this was, you know, kind of a, an effective um, strategy, but it kind of backfired when the European Union 
swept down there and said, look, you know, this is an external border with, this is Europe's external border. We can't have you do this. And so it kind of created a, a minor crisis there at, at the border, which in some sense is still going on. Um, for Netanyahu and Israel, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus um, hit basically when he was seeing his own political fortunes at a very low ebb hmm. for two reasons. One, because uh, he was, um, you know, the basically uh, accused of a number of different corruption right. uh, scandals. And, uh, and these cases were making their way through the courts, and it looked like they were going to basically drag him down. Um, and he was also having great difficulty putting together a government. Um, election after election still wasn't producing a kind of ruling majority. Um, and the, the parliament and uh, the Knesset in Israel is very fragmented. Um, so then along comes the coronavirus, and Netanyahu was able to do two things. One, he was able to basically postpone um, any court decisions and say, you know, this is an emergency situation. We can't, we can't, you know, deal with pesky little court issues like this right now. And the second was to basically forge an electoral compromise with the chief um, uh, opposition movement, this kind of blue-white coalition, and uh, and managed to, you know, hang on to power unbelievably. Um, uh, and it, it, this would never have happened if, if the oh. coronavirus hadn't kind of walked in to save the day for him. Uh, you can't let a good crisis go to waste now, can you? Uh, what, exactly. What, what, there's uh, also just uh, one couple more governments, Putin and Xi Jinping. Now, I, I sense, though they may not call themselves right-wing authoritarians, although Putin probably would, are they? And how has uh, coronavirus affected their hold on power and their authoritarianism? Mm-hmm. So let's start with Putin. And, and I know it's controversial to say that either of them are, are right-wing, um, oh, no. uh, given their backgrounds right. <laughs> in, in kind of in communist bureaucracy. Uh, but let's start with Putin. I mean, Putin has no problem declaring himself an illiberal leader. Uh, and his nationalist agenda is very mm-hmm. similar to uh, what you would find uh, among what, what the right-wing in Europe now calls itself, which is sovereignist. Uh, Putin is clearly a sovereignist uh, leader. In other words, he's, he believes in the sovereign power of Russia above all else. And he has a very conservative, uh, traditionally conservative yeah. uh, agenda. So, for instance, when um, uh, Russia is considering uh, uh, or amending its constitution, uh, 200 changes that was being considered, one of them, one of them was uh, making uh, marriage only between a man and a woman. Um, so that's obviously a very conservative plank. Another was basically saying that Russians believe in God, um, <laughs> which you know it's, it might seem uh, not all that necessary for a constitution to assert. But anyway, they they threw that in there. Um, but the the real kicker for the for the, these constitutional changes, and certainly the one that was uh, the main focus for outside observers was Putin's effort to uh, extend his own yes. um, rule. And uh, basically, according to the previous constitution, um, Putin had to had to step down after these last two terms. 
But uh, according to this amendment, it basically restarted the clock. So, uh, so Putin would have another two terms he could serve consecutively, which would extend his rule to 2036. And at that time, he'd be somewhere in his 80s and theoretically, at least, willing to step down. Um, but effectively, it, it, it established uh, Putin's, um, Putin as leader for life in Russia. And, and as with uh, Orban in Hungary, it was totally unnecessary to, to make this a referendum. The, the Russian parliament, the Duma, had already passed uh, the, all of the amendments, and so it really was a it was theater. I mean, what uh, Putin wanted to dem- wanted to demonstrate was that all of Russia was behind him. In order to do that, of course, he had to ensure that enough people showed up to vote and that they voted positively. Well, and in order to do that, they basically put pressure on people through the workplace to vote. Uh, so that was the, the stick, and then the carrot was. Um, they would have lotteries and give out prizes <laughs> for people who voted. So it was a, it was really a, a carnival to to ensure that Putin would be leader for life. Um, yeah. With Xi Jinping, it's been a little, a slightly different situation. Xi Jinping had already uh, got the Communist Party to declare him leader for life a couple of years ago. So, and and that was he saw no need to go to the Chinese people in a referendum for that because. Yeah. China's not a democracy, and, and in Russia, at least, Putin pretends it's a democracy. Mm. Uh, Xi Jinping also has a, a, a quite a conservative um, agenda in terms of, um, you know, uh, federal control over the regions, uh, a assertion oh, of um, Han majority over the minorities in Xinjiang and you know, the Uyghur minority or the Tibetans. Um, a, some degree of territorial expansion, um, at least with respect to areas that China has already identified as part of its uh, sphere, if you will. Um, And then a very considerable nationalism, not just nationalism of an ethnic variety, but nationalism of the nation-state variety of a rising China. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would consider him a a conservative authoritarian, um, you know, uh, whether he's is you know purely right wing or not is right. a question for other folks, but uh, but he has just to give you one example of how he's used the COVID crisis. Uh, while the world is largely distracted by these issues, uh, China passed a, a kind of national security law that it's applying to Hong Kong, and uh, it, it went into effect the end of June, and uh, and essentially it has criminalized you know. Uh, well, any expression of dissent, mm. I mean, if the, the authorities decide that um, that uh, they want to crack or to implement it in that way, they can throw de- demonstrators into jail for a very long time. So it's a it's a very harsh and punitive uh, national security law. So it seems like COVID has provided many different opportunities to uh, distract people and to be an emergency, to centralize and concentrate power. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is John Pfeffer of the Institute for Policy Studies. And the topic is COVID-19 and authoritarianism. And I, back a little bit to the, to the U.S. and to Steve's Bannon and Miller and their interest in deconstruction of the state. I wonder how... Perhaps, if wonder if opposition to wearing a mask can somehow begin to facilitate 
the deconstruction of the state and, and serves their purposes nicely. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think in some sense, Bannon and Miller work at cross purposes. Um, yeah. Ban, of course, you know, Bannon's not in in power any longer, and so, but he's still supportive of the president. Yeah. Um, and and Miller, of course, is very much still in the mix. But the reason I say there are cross purposes is because, um, you know, Miller's really focused on immigration and. Uh, as far as he's concerned, he wants to see more administrative state. You know, he wants to see, you know, ICE and Homeland Security and um, and uh, Customs and Border Protection. He wants to beef those up. Um, and, and he's got the president on, on his side in, in that respect. Um, so uh, the whole kind of what might be called the... Um, you know, the, the border industrial complex is is something that Miller wants to expand. Um, and not only its, its, its footprint, but its influence in Washington, D.C. Bannon, of course, was perfectly happy with, uh, you know, with an anti-immigration um, uh, strategy. And, and, but he largely saw it as, as an electoral strategy. Not, I don't think he was so much focused on on the administrative implications of it. I think uh, Bannon is uh, is primarily, well, you could argue that in both cases, you know, if you want to kind of uh, somehow resolve this contradiction, in both cases, um, uh, the, the border, border industrial complex is comparable to the military industrial complex. And all those who favored, you know, the reduction of the administrative state were really just focused on the welfare state. Um, and they weren't really concerned about sure. uh, the, the military or the policing. And so they can, they can uh, be comfortable with, with an uptick in, in administrative capacity for those realms. When it comes to COVID, um, you know, the, the welfare state is really, from their point of view, the nanny state. And the nanny state that um, is imposing uh, rules on individuals, but even more so uh, regulations on business. And so mask, no mask, well, uh, at an individual level, yes, this libertarianism dictates uh-huh. that individuals should decide, you know, whether they wear a mask or don't wear a mask. But I think ultimately it's really the regulations that are upsetting this faction the most. Uh, Regulations about, you know, keeping businesses open uh, during a pandemic uh, and how businesses function, whether masks are required inside the establishment or not. Um, That is probably what more uh, uh, really um, aggravates them than than the uh, individual mask wearing part of it. Sure, just a small part, but uh, yeah, it can help a little bit. And brings up the Boogaloo Boys and the Accelerationists. How? How? What? Are, what are they? And how has the pandemic served their goals? So these are folks who um, have been on the borders, the fringes of American politics for some time. I mean, they've taken different forms. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you had, you know, Ku Klux Klan neo-Nazis, John Birch Society, a spectrum going, you know, from, from the extreme right to the far right. And, and generally, you know, the distinction between those two, between the extreme right and the far right, even though they might seem to be pretty much the same, is that the extreme right is not interested in electoral politics, is not uh. interested in democracy, not interested in any kind of participation in the American state as it is uh, so 
you know, constituted. Uh, the far right, on the other hand, is interested in democracy. It's interested in um, participating in elections. These are folks who might you might call populists, um, perhaps, uh, and they are uh, very much interested in taking over the uh, the machinery of power rather than um, destroying the machinery of power. Uh, now the distinction between far right and extreme right that broke down to a certain extent with the election of Donald Trump because Donald Trump is a kind of consensus figure, mm-hmm. someone that you know the the extreme right, which previously had no interest in the state whatsoever, suddenly saw uh, as a representative of their political views, and the far right, of course, you know having uh, having tried to put in a variety of, of different um, figures into office over the years, whether it was David Duke or even, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Rand Paul's father, <laughs> Ron Paul, right. who uh, really served as, even though he's you know, kind of declared himself a libertarian, had, was really a vehicle for, for the far right for many years. Um, they were unsuccessful. Uh, and so Donald Trump is really, you know, this, this magical figure uh, who suddenly translated, you know, popular support from the fringes into actual political power. Now, uh, that meant that, you know, again, that the political spectrum has shifted so enormously with the Republican Party effectively captured by the far right. Uh, and the extreme right suddenly finds itself no longer on the extreme. (laughs) They they are like, maybe maybe we could contest for for power after all, because the the political system has really um, been warped so sufficiently that that we feel comfortable in it now. But then there are still still some who, you know, who still want to have nothing to do with with politics. And that's, you know, these, as I said, accelerationists. What they want is to bring down the system the faster, uh, the better. Sure. Uh, and the, the mechanism that they have embraced is, is race riot, mm-hmm. um, that they want to kind of aggravate tensions between black community and white community uh, and, uh, and use that to kind of um, essentially set fire to, to America. Uh, and then they would rebuild on the, on the, the embers, if mm. you will. Uh, perhaps not even the entire country, but they would establish their homeland in the Pacific Northwest or up in Maine or wherever they decided was sufficiently white for their purposes. <laughs> oh, my. And you mentioned, you used the word magic, and I think that's an interesting word. You know, some of the, the Puritans that came to America, you know, believed in some kind of magic. And the Trump far, you know, right uh, far right extreme right i don't know they they trash science they value ignorance as much as being educated they do not believe in science and they want to have magic like the uh those uh, pills or whatever the uh i forget what they're called uh but they don't right. work hydrochloroquine yeah hydrochloroquine yeah. <laughs> it it doesn't it's magic and yet they a lot of the trump people they just love it it's so much easier than thinking, I guess. I, I don't know. And, and you, and you, you talked in your in your webinar about uh, something with regard to unleashing political Darwinism. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's tempting to to think about the coronavirus as a kind of mutation, 
a mutation that's unexpected and that uh, when introduced into the body politic of various countries goes in different directions or has different effects. Um, and uh, the reason I was tempted to kind of use that analogy is because it seems as though uh, we'll see a kind of survival of the fittest, if you will, in terms of authoritarianism. You'll see the incompetent leaders, who were incompetent all along. I mean, Trump has been incompetent for three years, uh, Bolsonaro for nearly as long. Uh, but the coronavirus is an emergency that has really brought their incompetence to the foreground, has really, you know, served yeah. to amplify it. And so presumably they will fail as a result. Bolsonaro's approval ratings are very low at the moment. Trump's are as well. Uh, and yeah, but you never know. <laughs> that way, right? Um, whereas other, uh, other perhaps, quote-unquote, more fit uh, authoritarians will profit. Uh, as a result of it. And you see this in Europe. Um, you know, someone like Sebastian Kurz in, in Austria, um, the um, uh, Law and Justice Party in Poland, um, certainly Orban in Hungary, uh, they have uh, successfully maintained their popularity during this crisis. And um, and that goes for mainstream politicians in, in Europe as well. And it's the kind of far-right uh, political parties that haven't done so well in Europe, um, you know, like the uh, National Assembly in France, which is the, um, mm -hmm. the uh, follow-on or renamed National Front, uh, or the uh, alternative for Deutschland in, right. in Germany. Um, or Lega in Italy. All of these parties have either seen a, a dramatic drop uh, in popularity over the last three to four months, or they haven't, at the very least, uh, gained any any support. So, like I say, the the coronavirus is a kind of a, a Darwinian moment in which um, the, the competent can uh, survive this particular crisis, and the incompetent will go into the dustbin of history. Wow. I wonder uh, how that's going to work out here in the United States in particular. And I wonder, you know, Trump likes, obviously, uh, police states. I mean, he's, he's, he's into it. Do, do you think the pandemic can be used to help Trump actually enact martial law? And before you answer that, you know, the military, they're, they're part of the, the picture. How is the pandemic affecting the people who may be asked to serve the administration when it comes down to things like we've seen in Portland, Oregon? Well, I think there's considerable discontent inside the military. I mean, Good. the military saw what happened with that aircraft carrier, you know, where yes. everybody was infected and, and the government was like, stay away, we're not going to help you. Um, and, you know, the coronavirus has been infecting people throughout uh, both bases here in the United States, as well as bases abroad, a uh, major um, outbreak in Okinawa, for instance. Um, mm. And, you know, the, the fact that the leadership has been so uh, blasé, not only about the population as a whole, but even about the fighting strength of the military, has got to have some impact on, on the thinking of people. And I, I think, you know, the, the decision by Esper to, um, yeah. to reject... Trump's effort to use the military uh, to uh, basically uh, control or suppress 
the Black Lives Matters protests. I mean, I think that that too has sent a strong signal to rank and file. You know, that's why Trump has had to rely on the federal agencies that he's relied on out in Portland. Right. You know, he doesn't have control over the National Guard, with one exception, that's D.C., because right. D.C. doesn't have a governor. Yeah. Um, uh, so he, he can't control the National Guard unless it's a Republican governor that he, he you know, uh, is able to persuade. Uh, the military has said no, no thank you. Uh, so he had to rely on the forces that were available, the ICE and so forth. I think that's a, a real strong indication to us, but also no doubt to Trump himself, that he has limited uh, firepower at his disposal. Uh, that is, it will be the riskiest, riskiest of strategies uh, if mm. you cannot demand a majority of the firepower. Uh, I, I hope not. Every now and then there's good news and hopeful news. I got to ask, elections are theoretically coming up. Can there be safe and secure elections in a COVID crisis if they slow the work of the post office, minimize mail-in votes, as he so clearly wants to do, and use other 21st century versions of Jim Crow laws to suppress voting? Isn't that evidence of a successful use of COVID for Kind of a right-wing, almost coup in America. What what do you think about voting in COVID? Uh, It's worrisome, actually. What do you think? Well, it is worrisome. And and as you've pointed out, these uh, voter suppression activities, they even precede, you know, uh, Donald Trump coming to power. And, you know, we see that, saw that with gerrymandering. We've seen that with uh, closing down voting booths, obviously with the Citizens United decision Mm. uh, and the impact of money on politics. And it's been ongoing for the last 20 years, at least, ever since the Republican Party essentially became the in this country. Um, So it's a concern. COVID will uh, continue to be, I think, used by the Republican Party to... um, to reduce the number of people going to the polls. What I feel optimistic about, of course, was that um, that primary that took place in Wisconsin. I mean, you know, there, there wasn't a big election. You know, the, the Democratic primary had already basically been determined. Biden was the party's choice at that point. And, of course, there was really no, no Republican um, right. party uh, primary to speak of. There were a couple of important local races. There was a judgeship, for instance. The people came out in droves, you know, and despite the threat of COVID. I think people are determined to to ensure that we have a democracy in this country. Well, you could say the same about Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. uh, protests. I mean, people were determined to show up on the streets, even with the risk. Um, and I, I think that's what's going to happen in November. I mean, this is really... Uh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime election. Uh, I think people know what the stakes are, and they are going to take the risk to ensure that we still live in a democracy. Boy, I hope you're right. I, I, I need to have some uh, some optimism. And the new book is called, uh, let me just find it here, on that old piece of paper here. Uh, the new book is titled... Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europeans' Broken Dreams. Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams. So that should be interesting as well. Fascinating to talk to you. And uh, boy, if COVID 
you know, despite the obvious effort to, to increase and bolster authoritarianism, somehow the rumblings of democracy remain strong. We're resistant to it. It's part of our nature, perhaps. If people are interested in reading uh, more of your stuff and getting in touch, what would you suggest, John? Uh, they could either go to uh, Foreign Policy and Focus website, which is sbfpif.org, mm-hmm. or they can go to my website, which is just my name, johnfeffer.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm going to tell all you fascists to make peace and rise. People all over this world are getting organized to fight. You fascists are to lose. Hatred cannot stop us This one thing I know The politics and Jim Crow and greed Have got to go You're bound to lose You fascists are bound to lose Sorry Yeah, true Are you fascists about to lose 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 People are burning colors, marching side by side, marching across the fields where a million fascists die to fight to lose. You fascists are right to lose. Are you fascists about to lose? You fascists about to lose. You fascists about to lose. I'm going to this battle, take my union gun. Gonna end this world of slavery before this war is won. You're bound to lose. You fascists are bound to lose.